but what I would like people to imagine is that, you know, there are sort of alternative lifestyles and ways of being and ways of envisioning the world and the future that are more hopeful than what we currently have, right? I do think that we're living, and this may just be because I'm speaking to you from Minnesota in February, I do think we're living in a time of relative hopelessness, right? Like, things, pretty much everyone I talk to feels deeply bleak and ambivalent about Mm -hmm. things in almost every regard. So I hope that the book, with all of its quirks, with all of its oddities, can just sort of be be a gentle message to people that there are other ways of doing things, there are other ways of living, there are other ways of envisioning yourself and your partnerships and your community that might be better. So welcome to episode six. I'm very delighted to welcome uh, my next guest in this podcast project that I have going, Alex Magnolia. We have known each other, uh, I think, about 10 years, um, yeah. but uh, have lost touch over those that time as we both uh, moved around, but have reconnected recently. And I found out back, I think, when we last talked in March, May sometime, that um, you wrote a novel and I was just so impressed and excited for you. And so I wanted to have you on the podcast to talk about that experience. But yeah. um, first, uh, just welcome, Alex. And first, if you wouldn't mind just introducing yourself and tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, thank you so much, Hannah. I'm really, I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to participate in this conversation and be be among your interesting and high-achieving guests. Much more achieving than I have, of course. <laughs> Um, but at any rate, at any rate, interesting, cool, um, inspiring people. Yeah. So what uh, what does one need to know about me? Uh, my name is Alex Magnolia. I have he him pronouns. I'm recently turned thirty. I'm aging, so that's congratulations. Happening. Well, you know, it's, uh, I think age is a, is a privilege that's denied to many. So I'm I'm reveling in my in my antiquity here in my <laughs> third or fourth decade, whichever. One never, one never knows how to calculate these sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Anyway, yeah. Um, So I am working on a PhD in medieval history at the University of Minnesota. I'm in my fifth year, so in theory I'm approaching the end, but uh, that's more in theory than in reality. It depends who you ask, right? For my professional life, I'm a scholar of the Byzantine millennium. I work on a collection of letters from the 10th century by the Patriarch of Constantinople. Uh, I teach at the university as well, so I sometimes instruct my own courses on subjects that I get to propose, or I just teach whatever the history department at the university wants me to teach. I'm, I'm happy to do it if they'll have me. And yeah, I'm originally from Colorado. I feel a very deep sense of sort of uh, belonging and meaning in my in my Western roots. And I've really sort of leaned into them the last couple of years, you know, sort of donning my cowboy boots and Stetsons and bolo ties from time to time. So <laughs> I'm I'm enjoying the enjoying the cowboy arc of my current aesthetic phase. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what what sort of other things are are essential in explaining the the things I, that make make me up. You know, I think that's pretty great. You and I met um, in 2013 during an internship we did together, and yes. I remember thinking back then you were one of the most unique people I'd ever met. Um, oh, thank you. And I mean that in the best possible way. Like some things I remember about you were your massive vocabulary and impressive <laughs> vocabulary, which while reading your book, I was like, 
these are a lot of words I've never seen before. I didn't oh. even know they were words. Oh, Detritus is the one that Detritus. I, about. I know, Detritus. I know. But um, also, you at the time you were, I think, editor or on staff of your college newspaper, and you had a an affinity for fonts, specific oh, types yes. of fonts. Um, yes, I don't know absolutely. if that's lived on to this day, but I remember being like, I've never met anyone who like knew about fonts. You know, I just hadn't lived much, you know, and I was like, oh, who, well. who had like an affinity for certain types of fonts. <laughs> I just thought that was really unique. Um, yes, thank you. And your, I think your Western aesthetic was then was was evident. I knew you were very passionate about Colorado and passionate yes. about Colorado Springs, um, where yeah. we were. So yeah, no, certainly. And you know, I, I guess I did elide over a couple of years of life experience there in Colorado Springs when I ran for public office as a mm-hmm. youth. So yes. I did that. As, I, I did that as well. Uh, it wasn't. I mean, perhaps we'll talk about it later. It wasn't a mistake, but it was a great learning experience. <laughs> yeah, a wonderful and challenging growth opportunity. <laughs> As one, as one might say. And I feel like we sort of have ways of, we have ways of like retaining the people who we meet, who we care about. And yours, you you know this in particular, but one of the things I have retained from you is the word additionally at the beginning <laughs> yeah. of a sentence. I find yeah. it to be, I find it to be a very sort of artful, useful, and direct way of expressing exactly what I'm trying to say. So like, you'll, you'll go on this, I mean, not you, I will go on this whole thing and then say additionally what have you. So I've, I've maintained that down to this day in 2023. Yeah. Well, and we met at a time I was going into my senior year. And so I was very into my thesis was going to be about Walt Whitman. Uh, Yes, of course. And I was very into Walt Whitman. And I, I had no, I can't, I had no idea. I talked about it so much, but you had been years since we'd talked and you reached out to me last spring and you were like, hi, I'm going to get a Walt Whitman tattoo, but I want to make sure that he doesn't like suck because <laughs> he's, yes, you know, yeah. he was a man of the times and he was like, given your study of Walt Whitman, what do you think? And I was like, yeah. oh my gosh, no, no one has asked me of that in years. And it was like tapping into a part of myself that I just hadn't tapped into in a very long time. And it meant mm-hmm. a lot to me. I was like, oh my gosh, wow. I, I haven't yeah. thought about this in years. Yeah. Well, I feel like when when one is privileged to know a Walt Whitman expert, you have to <laughs> you have to rely on them from time to time. Indeed. Well, and I, I appreciate the expert. I don't think I am an expert in Walt Whitman, but I did spend a lot of time yeah. reading and studying Walt Whitman. Uh, my yes. senior, actually, also my my junior year, I spent a lot of time studying Walt Whitman. I just the it was like someone who knew me from my past and knew something that was really like important to me and a milestone in my life and my college yeah. career reaching back out to me. Um, and I, I think we ended on, you know, while he was a man of the times, you know, had some questionable feelings. He was very much a transgressive person, pushed boundaries, especially around gender um, uh-huh. and sexuality in ways that I think are really meaningful. So I, I, yes. I know you ended up getting the tattoo and I think it's an awesome tattoo. <laughs> Thank you. I did end up getting it. Also, I ended up doing uh, some Walt Whitman readings at my at my 30th. I don't know. There were a couple of passages that I found really? very meaningful. Yeah. So I actually, I'm a wonderful party host. I love assigning people homework for parties. Oh my so gosh. Like, like the week before, I'm like, okay, okay, so-and-so, you're going to be given a selection from Song of Myself. Oh please, my God. Please practice these 20 lines. And they're like, um, okay, I, I guess. <laughs> Uh, one person was not, was not able to do it. They, they were not feeling well enough to like read it day of. So I did their reading, but other than that, we had, we had two or three. They were very nice. Mm. Ah, and what was that like for you? What, what, what did that 
give to you on your birthday. Yeah. Well, I feel like that's a way of saying, okay, so I I find gift giving very meaningful. Despite sounding like a sort of late medieval child prince, I think it is an important <laughs> love language. And for me, this is like a way of saying, I don't need objects. I don't need goods. I don't need, I don't need things for my birthday, but it would be meaningful for me if you, if you gave me this as a gift, like this passage is meaningful. This poem is meaningful. So I'm inviting you to participate in a meaning making ritual, meaning making. That's how one says that Yeah. at any yeah, rate. Um, yeah. yeah. So I, I, I think it was a way to just sort of to express to people that this would be meaningful for me and make an ask, make a bid, as it were, for them to participate in it. And they were all very enthusiastic, except um, except the person who was not feeling physically like well enough day of. They yeah. have cat, they have cat allergies, and I have I have several cats. So. Oh dear. Well, so in the last year, you wrote a novel called Moonstone Road, and mm-hmm. I'm very curious what inspired you to write a book. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a great question. I think in a lot of ways. The the core story is something that I had been carrying around for a very long time, right? So it it emerged really episodically, especially during COVID, the, the height of COVID, like 2020, 2021, uh, when things were quite bleak. Mm-hmm. And there were just, there were things in life that I wondered, okay, well, we, wait, we should back up and talk a little bit about the novel first. So I know, just, I was like, maybe yeah. summarize. <laughs> yeah, 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 okay. So it's a post-apocalyptic novel that essentially follows five characters after a sort of society, world-ending, eschatological end-times event. Follows five characters on their journey from cold climbs to warmer climbs because they don't think they can survive a sort of post-industrial world in Minnesota. Let's not at all read any personal life allegory of mine into this. <laughs> but... but uh, they are they are going from Minnesota to Colorado, so note that. So we we follow these five characters, but the premise and real hook of the book is that these are all people for various reasons whose lives I think would be improved by a reorganizing, reshuffling of society along new lines. So mm-hmm. one one person was imprisoned, another person had very significant debt, uh, someone had sort of been a victim of abuse or scam and uh, abuse or scams, I should say in this, in the internet age, all of these sorts of things. We shouldn't give too much away. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. But that's the main premise is that we follow people whose lives I argue would be improved by a reshuffling of society in an apocalyptic sense. There's also, I think there's a lot of other themes throughout the book. I'm, I'm obviously grumpy about a lot of things in life and in our society. And I think COVID was the impetus for a lot of that. Because I, like many people, maybe most people, did feel a great sense of like hopelessness, right? And mm-hmm. powerlessness, especially. I, a global pandemic really makes one feel like there's, like, like there's nothing you can do, right? Yeah. There's no, I as an individual can't do anything, or I didn't feel like I could do anything to stop this, you know, global disease from spreading. Obviously, that's not entirely true with like masking and being generally mm-hmm. careful and things. But anyway, right? And at the time, like staying time. home, that was the the weird thing. Was like the thing right. you can do is nothing. Right. Don't do it. Just yes, stay home. Precisely. Precisely. <laughs> I mean, even though there were concrete things one could do, I still felt kind of powerless against the systemic forces of COVID. Uh, and then this is combined with all the other things that I think we saw revealed all at once, right? So economic breakdown, a a short, jaunty little recession there in 2020, 2021, 
the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis, which is where he was living at the time. All of these things and strange little episodes that stuck with me made me want to write about the things I wrote about. Uh, so I wrote out of order, just chapter by chapter based on things that came up that I thought about. Um, yeah. I don't know. Sometimes I would wake up from the middle of, I would wake up in the middle of the night from a dream and I had a little journal beside the bed and I would just jot down ideas. Like the, the chapter about the Tesla was the first one that I ever wrote. Yeah. Uh, and I like characters, characters didn't have names. They didn't have personalities. They didn't have anything. But I'm like, I want to talk about this in a post-apocalyptic setting. Like how we deal with material wealth that is now real, relatively useless. Yeah. In a new, in a new order. Yeah. Anyway. You know, I I would drive through neighborhoods in in Minnesota or Colorado. This is especially true in Colorado, and I would see these homes going up. I don't know how often you you are able to get back home to Colorado, but every time I go, I feel like I see a new development mm-hmm. in Colorado Springs, in Denver, in the suburbs along the Front Range, and they're just these identical cookie cutter homes, right? Like they 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 seem to be just slapped together of wood and insulation and some plastic siding and they're identical. They, they feel soulless to me. Yeah. So a, a lot of the things I write about in Moonstone are just like, I don't know, inspired by me driving through a soulless neighborhood in Colorado that's being put up on land in a place that feels more special than this housing development is, mm-hmm. is uh, implying. Yeah. There's many lines that I loved from your book, but there was one in particular that just really, it's at the very beginning and it's really struck me and I, it's, it's stuck with me. It was a beautiful apocalypse. Everyone did their part. Yeah. <laughs> and I think um, that was the interesting thing because obviously we have a lot of uh, media stories, movies, TV shows about post-apocalyptic worlds and what causes them to fall. And I just yeah. thought this was, it was almost like there wasn't one thing. It was just everyone kind of at the same time stopped working together, stopped. It just happened over time. Yeah. It's just like things just started to break down. No one really knew why. And I thought yeah. I thought that was really you know an interesting concept where it's not one thing, mm-hmm. this big event. It's it's just everyone's participating in the destruction of the world. Yes, yes. Well, I, you know, in, in the last couple of years, that is something I've thought a lot about is the sort of breakdown of trust in our systems. Right. Mm-hmm. I think if we if we gathered together a handful of people and we asked them things like, "Do you trust the media system?" Do you trust the economic system? Do you trust universities, medicine, all of it? Right. Do you tr- do you trust one another? Do you trust your neighbors? Right. I don't know. So that felt like that felt like a great launching point for the apocalypse. Is like a society that feels like it's in really deep that the problems run very deep, right? Right. And for me, I felt like the pandemic was a great time to talk about weird radical transformation. Uh, because it was such an unusual time in our life, right? I mean, this hadn't happened for a century before this. Right. And yeah. as a historian, I'm interested in change over time, continuity and discontinuity. And I thought a lot about the relationship between COVID-19 and uh, the plague in medieval Europe, right? Like the, mm-hmm. the Black Death. How would we respond if an outbreak like that killed 30% of the people? Yeah. I mean, COVID was deadly enough and caused a great deal of like human and economic and social suffering. But how would we survive as a society if 30% was the mortality rate? Right. 
And I think your book does it. It mentions a pandemic. Yes, it's like one throwaway line in the introduction as to why why the apocalypse is happening. Uh, <laughs> no, notably, we never come back to it throughout the book. I'm like, oh, we needed a reason for this apocalypse. Mm-hmm, there was a bad pandemic. Yeah, <laughs> and then things just started to unravel <laughs> over time, and everyone's doing their part to stop. Yes, making everything work. Yeah. So we talked a little bit about what the writing process was like, but I am curious. Mm-hmm. You know, you have your full-time work, you have your studies. How did you find the time to sit down and write? Yeah, it's something like 80,000 words, maybe 270 pages. That feels good. That feels like an adequate amount, right? Yeah. Nobody nobody wants to read a 400-page novel. I mean, like, I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll suffer. (laughs) I'll suffer. Hang true, in there, uh, but true. I, I have a sort of dystopian book club with some friends that I that I run. Of course, um, you do. That's the thing, Alex. This is the reason you're so cool. Thank you. So, <laughs> someone, to do that. <laughs> I don't know. It seems like a fun thing to do. Uh, someone assigned a book that was almost 400 pages, and I'm like, "Are you kidding? <laughs> yeah. I have to. I have to read this in the next two weeks." Anyway, I for the record, I finished it, and only one other person finished it, and then the book club got indefinitely postponed because they couldn't finish the book they assigned anyway just kidding oh my gosh kidding i'm not roasting them to Uh, be fair that sounds pretty on par with most book clubs (laughs) well and uh, it was i I got a text from a friend who was invited to book club and she had said is this the kind of thing where people read the book beforehand (laughs) and i responded and i'm like well we're certainly not going to be reading it during book club (laughs) sitting in the same room reading parable of the sower i'm not sure that sounds like a nice time (laughs) Anyway, anyway, neither here nor there. Yes, the writing process. So I, I just wrote every day. I found it to be a remarkably refreshing break from academic writing. So like when I work on my dissertation or articles or even lectures, you know, a good day might be three, 500 words. And then you're bringing in articles and books and citations and you find the one perfect book you need and it's in German and it's not in your library. Yeah. But you have to request it from the university of michigan and then you're gonna have to read it in german when it gets here in two weeks so writing writing the novel was just this very refreshing experience of like i can craft this i can do what i want Uh, i don't have to cite anyone i don't have to like you know delve deeply into footnotes i think there was actually a a footnote in the first draft but i was told by one of the people who read it initially you can't have footnotes in your novel So it was written at a time right after I finished my first dissertation chapter and I wanted a little break. So I I took like a few weeks off from the dissertation research and writing to just write the novel because I'd been kicking it around for a long time. Uh, It was also in a very transitory, difficult period in life that I, looking back on is, it's understandable that something that I needed a creative outlet to work on because I was in the process of moving from a home in Minneapolis to a home in the suburbs. Uh, I was in a relationship that was ending after many years and, you know, things, things were challenging in life. Things were hard in life. And of course it's a global pandemic and I'm in a sort of high stress PhD teaching position. So the novel was a way, it felt like a way to reclaim some agency and to, Mm. to, exert myself in a creative outlet that I didn't necessarily have any other means to do. So it was, it was a joy. I, I plowed through it. Sometimes I would write three, four, 5,000 words in a day. Oh my gosh. Um, I mean, whole chapters would just sort of emerge. I would have, there would be a little kernel of an idea. Like I was driving through Southern Utah to go to Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument 
There's a really wonderful animal shelter in southern Utah called Best Friends Animal Society that I highly recommend. It's amazing. It's in Kanab, Utah. Anyway, um, I was driving from Kanab to Grand Staircase Escalante. There was this awful billboard that was like a father and son or a grandfather and grandson fishing. And it said, you never forget your first time. Oh. It was just a very strange vibes. Ugh. The vibes were rancid. They were very off. Yeah. And I'm strange. This is, I, I had written a little bit of the book and I'm like, Ooh, that has to be in there. Yeah. This billboard with wretched vibes has to be there. So I think, I think I sort of collect things and collect stories and collect people, not in a way to like make myself seem interesting and engaging, mm-hmm. but in ways that I think about and that sort of reverberate in the psyche. Like this billboard is strange. I'm going to make a chapter about this stupid billboard. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Or people in my life who I think are, outsized, larger-than-life characters that I would like to let speak for themselves. In some cases, people I've never met, but I'm sort of inspired by or or that I think a lot about. Or in some cases, you know, people I've met who have passed away or who aren't aren't a part of my life anymore, I would still like to sort of keep part of them in amber so I can return to them from time to time. Yeah. And I, like, took a creative writing class in college, and it's a memorable experience for a lot of reasons. But I I remember like the lesson of show, don't tell. And I felt like I was never very good at that because of that. I feel like when I produce things, I'm constantly judging myself. I'm like, I'm telling, not showing. No one's going to like this. This is bad. And it's so it's hard for me. I've got a constant inner monologue, like a lot of people, just constant chatter that I haven't figured out how to tell to shut up yet. And I wonder, like, did you experience any of that? Or it was, it sounds, what it sounds like is flow. You were in the flow state and it was really cathartic and creative. But did you ever find yourself like stumbling over judgment? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yes, definitely, definitely. I'm actually, so it's it's been about a year, maybe a year and a few months um, since I finished Moonstone. And there are passages that I, that I have difficulty reading and going back to now because I, I think, you know, if this if this goes any further, if this goes into the world, it will have to be, re, you know, this chapter, this passage, this story arc will have to be rewritten um, because I'm unhappy with it. Mm-hmm. For example, the first chapter, I think, is all is all telling and very little showing. It is sort of a manifesto. Mm-hmm. It's sort of it's sort of a rant. Yeah. Um, and everyone who reads it comments on that, that it's not very novelly. It's more like a grumpy manifesto. I, I, that's fair. I kind of like it though, personally, because it, it's Thank funny you. how it starts. And I was like, okay, this is, this is going to be one thing. <laughs> and then it completely changes. Like, it's like you have your manifesto, it ends, and then we get into characters. And I was like, yes, oh, precisely. you're setting then, the stage. You're, you. you're painting the picture of the world. And yes, it was so, it yes. was so Alex. That's oh, Thank like, you. Well, well <laughs> it's just my manifesto. Like it's, there's no characters, no story. It's like, God damn it. This man is grumpy. <laughs> I don't know. If I, I was like, I was like, God damn it. This feels real. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, like this happening, it, like not even half of it. Like 80% of the things are just from the news. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So no, no, I, I definitely struggle with telling instead of showing but I, I've also really benefited from many lovely and kind and generous people. I'm pointing at you, but people can't see that. <laughs> who have who have read the novel and given feedback, right? To the extent that whole stories, whole sort of story arcs and chapters have been removed. Um, oh wow! So the so the version you read is missing. Well, it's not missing. It has been improved by the 
excision of a 10 or 15 page chapter, one of the walking chapters early on Mm. that had some themes that coming back to were problematic. So I guess I've sort of limited my exposure of the, of my ideas by having people read the novel who I like and trust. And they're not members of the public saying this person is unhinged. (laughs) So how did it feel to actually finish it? And I know it's like, it sounds like you're still editing, you're still thinking about it, but you know, you, you kind of put the end on it and you're like, I'm ready to share this with people. What was that like for you? Yeah. I just, so I did write the end last, the last chapter is probably my favorite. It just makes sense to me. It just feels right. Mm -hmm. Oh, it it felt lovely to finish it. It felt really lovely. It's difficult to reread the last chapter without feeling emotional because I think that's where it really shines and where it really sort of comes together for me anyway. So yeah, to to finish it was a lovely feeling. I wanted to immediately come back to it and like edit and revise and submit it to every possible obscure anarchist press. Sidebar, there aren't that many. Um, (laughs) And I I felt this great sense of sort of verve and urgency and ambition. That had to be put aside for a few other life-related things for a few months. Uh, But I did come back to it eventually. Well, obviously. So yeah, it was a lovely and cathartic feeling to finish. And it's still it's still with me. I still think about it. I still tinker with it from time to time. And I would love to write the second one. It lends itself to a sequel, I think. Yeah. Um, because we didn't get to spend enough time. Well, we shouldn't give it away. There are things at the end that we should have spent more time doing. Yeah, so I, I have a lot of thoughts about it and about the second one. But to finish was a lovely feeling. Mm. Yeah. And sharing it with people for the first time, what was that like? Yeah. The first person who read it was uh, the person with whom I was in a relationship at that mm-hmm. time, uh, my, my former spouse, who gave really kind and genuinely lovely feedback. I think there were, you know, there were some themes that she wasn't as invested in and that she didn't, she didn't enjoy as much. But I recall we read it, we were both reading it on a plane. We had printed copies, big sort of funky spiral bound copies. And we were coming back from Florida to Minnesota. You have to leave Minnesota in the winter, sidebar. Mm. Um, just for your mental health, you've got to get away from Minnesota in the winter. Yeah. I know you don't live here, so this is not advice for you, but anyway. Um, no, I believe it, though. I, I th- would leave. Yeah. yeah, there was this beautiful sort of ombre effect sunset as we were coming back to Minnesota. And I recall this moment very distinctly because we were both listening to music. And I, I wrote on the copy of Moonstone, wow, there's a lovely ombre sunset. And I pointed out the window. So yeah, you know, to to share it with people... To share it with people, I feel like, is an invitation to be known, right? Yeah. It's a bid for connection in that sense. Like if it, if it's being shared with a partner or a friend or what have you, that's just fundamentally different than giving it to an editor or giving it to um, an agent, these sorts of things, because that feels very impersonal and very dispassionate. Like they are reading it for literary quality. They're reading it for saleability. Right. Let's be completely yeah. clear about that. So no, to to share it with a partner or a friend or these sorts of things, yeah, it's like an invitation to be known. And that's mm-hmm. that's one of the most lovely things that one can do, I think. Yeah. I think that is so beautiful. And I think it makes me think it's an invitation to be known and to be seen, yeah. which is something that I really struggle with. Um, and I think it's, it's very scary to me that I, I have all these thoughts in my head about they're going to think, who do I think I am? And I think I'm, you know, so great. Or they're going to think I'm, I don't know how to show. I only know how to tell, <laughs> like, you know, and I just, yeah. it takes some real vulnerability to do that. But I think it's so beautiful because I find 
I, I do want to be known and I do want to be seen. And it's yeah. very hard for me to put myself in a position where I'm vulnerable enough for that to happen. Yes. No, definitely. Definitely. In what ways does that manifest for you? Like, what sort of things do you think you, you would want to put out into the world to, to feel more known and seen? Mm. And, and, and who is the intended audience? Like, are you looking to be known by many or by few? Oh, man. Good question. Woof. The interview has switched. All right. Um, <laughs> that's a good question. I think as a perfectionist who's trying to get better, I want everyone. Recovering perfectionist. Indeed. And some days it's better than others, but um, I want everyone to know me and love me. The audience is the world. And I just want to be lauded and know I have no faults. It is, I am, and which is obviously like completely unrealistic. Um, In fact, in in therapy this week, we were talking about some people like chocolate ice cream and some people like vanilla and that's totally Mm -hmm. okay. And it's okay Mm -hmm. if people don't like your brand of ice cream. And I'm like, yes, yes, I know. But like, God damn it, I'm going to try. Like I will be every flavor to everybody. So some sort of myriad ice cream. Yeah. And that's not possible. And it obviously is like the death of the inner person, like the soul to try to be everything to everyone. And you're betraying yourself constantly. And so I think, no. On a surface level, that is how I feel. But I think if I could get to a place where I'm like, this is, I am producing something, it is authentic in me, and whether or not you like it doesn't diminish what it is. I think that's what I would like. And if it's just a few people, and actually, to be fair, that's why I'm sharing this podcast. It took me a long time to get it out. I had a recording. It took me six months to actually share it. But I, I, I thought, you know, if there's just one person who hears this and feels less alone or feels something positive, that is worth it. Even if I never know, that is worth it. And I, to support that, I try not to look at my downloads or my shares, my likes, because it just, that gets me in the place of like, not enough people like this when that's supposed, it's not supposed to be the point. Yes. You're leaning away from the perfectionism and perhaps into something that is scary, but meaningful. Mm Mm-hmm. Or yeah. not, not, not scary, but like less certain. Oh, it's scary. <laughs> it's very <laughs> scary. This is like in my head. So I, I looked at my post. I post on LinkedIn when I have a new episode and I looked at who liked the post and yeah. somebody from my past liked the post. And I immediately was like, she probably thinks this is so stupid. Like I just went into this narrative again. This is why I'm in therapy. But yeah. like I went into this whole narrative about how she probably thinks I'm an idiot or I'm I'm soft or not cool. And I just I she liked the post, Alex. Like she liked yeah. it. And I she didn't she didn't dislike it. Imagine what I would oh. do with a troll. <laughs> like, no, no, she was probably trying to be affirming and supportive. No, I know. Maybe. I know. Probably. So, anyways, I, I appreciate that question a lot because um uh, uh. you know, I have like I've I have a diary, I've written things in my diary that I thought, you know this could be worth sharing and um, uh, like a, having a blog or some kind of story to tell. Cause I do, yeah. you know, I, I admire people like you and, and a lot of the people I, I interview are share something in common and it is that they are unafraid or at least they don't let fear of judgment stop them from putting mm-hmm. their work and themselves out into the world. Yeah. No, absolutely. It's it's well. I'm I'm flattered to be considered among those people. Um, I'm not sure the book is in the world, so to speak. But you've shared you. it with people. I That's do you true. know That's when true. I was creating this podcast, I told yeah. virtually no one. 
yeah. not a soul. I wasn't like, I'm doing this cool thing and I can't wait to share it. I was like, I'm going to do this. And maybe someday someone who knows me will hear it. Like I, mm-hmm. my, I, my childhood best friend, I've known her for years and years and years was like, you didn't tell me you were doing this. And I was like, oh. I told no one. Yeah. <laughs> because I yeah. didn't want, I didn't want any sort of conversation around it. I was like, I, and, and to be fair, when I posted the first episode, I, I got, I had to get pretty drunk <laughs> to be like, all right, <laughs> oh. <laughs> no, hold on, I'm doing it. So that's right, anyways, that's right. no, I mean, honestly fair, honestly fair. So uh, let's go ahead and talk about what putting Moonstone Road into the world has made possible for you. Oh yes. What it has made possible for me to return to the theme that we were discussing just a second ago. Like, I think it is an invitation to be known, right? Like, I give it to people who I like and trust in order to sort of, I don't know, share a part of myself with them that is, it's not, it's not otherwise hard to talk about, but it's an, it's an invitation to understand like my, my thinking, my stories, all of this. I think that it's largely allegorical, right? Like having, having written it, I look back on it and I'm like, okay, all of these characters are to some extent allegorical for me. Mm -hmm. If not, if not my direct life experience, (laughs) <laughs> experiences experiences of close friends, family, partners, these sorts of things, right? So all of the novel is drawn from like a mosaic of my experience, if that makes sense. So yeah, for me it it has meant trying to like deepen deepen connections with people who are willing to read it. And also I, you know it's a big ask to read it. Um mm-hmm. I know a lot of folks just aren't, they aren't into it. They don't have time. I was chatting with someone recently about Moonstone. And also, I don't, I don't talk about it to people, just so you know. Because it, it does feel, I guess this, this, we'll talk about my therapy a little bit. Um, <laughs> it does, it does feel like something, I don't want to seem braggadocious or like I'm flexing. Like I've done this great achievement, right? Like, no, I was depressed in a bad place in life and I was, you know, mad about everything. So I wrote about it and wrote and wrote until the feelings were still there. But that now they were done in a beautiful way. So it's not I, I sometimes resist talking about it to people because I don't want to seem I don't know. I can't think of a nice word to describe it, but I don't want to seem braggadocious. I don't want to seem um pretentious. Like I'm some incredible, amazing novelist who's rubbing elbows with Hemingway. Like, you know, <laughs> I was just mad. I was just, I I felt feelings and I wrote words about it. Mm-hmm. Um, I put, I, my thoughts, my thoughts made my fingers click the thing. And then the clicks made words and the words made sentences. And sometimes nice images emerged. <laughs> um, it's a big ask, I think, to ask someone to read and to perceive and to understand the work. So I was chatting with someone recently who said, that sounds really great. I would like to, she did not say read. She's like, I'd like to experience that, but I'm not going to read it. I just don't have time. And the visual medium has never worked for me. So why don't you record an audiobook? <gasps> Great I'm like, idea. I'm like, well, I'll record you the first chapter and then see what you think. And then maybe we'll do the rest. I don't know how this would work. I don't have the, I don't have the technical expertise and know how I type with two fingers. Okay? <laughs> like, <laughs> I can tell you it's not as hard as you think. Okay, Although right. to be fair, a whole book would be a lot of work. Yeah. One idea would be to like find someone who will do it for like pretty cheap, like a voice yeah. actor for pretty cheap, mm-hmm. so you don't have to deal with it. But it's not as hard as you think. Okay, all right. We can well, have like a tick, one of the TikTok AIs, right? Like this, that's all this, a good idea. There's all the very oh, cheesy voiceovers. I hate. They're, that. they're terrible. They're very cringe. To be clear, yes. Um, we live She'll hate it. <laughs> we li- I know. Literally, we live in a technological hellscape. Um, <laughs> if anything, I'll read it. I'll read the damn thing, and I'll do like like. 
okay, uh, this person is not a child. Um, but when you're like reading a book to a child, you're like, I need to do big voices for all the characters and all this. Like, mm-hmm. I'll have to develop big voices for everyone. Uh, anyway. Yeah. Well, yeah. there's no voices in the first chapter, so we'll just we'll get through that and see what that's happens. That's true. That's true. Yeah. I uh, and I, I appreciate that person's honesty. Um, <laughs> I think <laughs> right. when you were talking to me about it, you described it as a post-apocalyptic something or other, and I was like, "That sounds really interesting." And I oh, honestly yes. could see myself reading that for sure. Yeah. I mean, so yeah. I was like, "Yeah, let's send it over." No, one of my one of my favorite ways of describing it is a post-apocalyptic critique of modernity, which that's is That's what re- you said. And I that's was like, a that's really it. like that's a very highfalutin way of talking about what I'm talking about. <laughs> uh but anyway, so I think it, it could be read that way. It could be interpreted that way. It sold me. Yeah. I was like, I'm feeling critiquing modernity right now. Let's do that's it. Right. I'm feeling it. I am sad and angry and like can't quite figure out why I can't get the energy to do stuff but uh, i know i know damn it modernity i blame you for all of my individual problems yeah. and all the larger social problems too yes i mean um, yes we have come yeah. to a much better place than we were in the past but there is also a real trade-off to where we are for sure no certainly certainly yeah so looking to the future um mm-hmm. what do you hope putting moonstone road out into the world will make possible for you and for others yeah vast wealth and immense privilege and me mm. driving a rolls royce i'm kidding yeah um i think Just... i think a queer post-apocalyptic anarchist novel is not about to generate vast wealth and riches also that's <laughs> not the point that's not the point at all um actually i have a good friend from high school who said i would like to i would like to be the first sale i will pay you for it and i'm like oh wow. my goodness well if you want to pay for the printing and then add a dollar to the top of it, I'll, I'll make a profit. And he's like, all right, cool. We haven't coordinated it yet. Anyway, so I, we might we, we might be making a dollar from it quite Hey! Um, <laughs> that's right. That's more than I started with. So what has it... What do you hope it'll make possible? I would like people who read it not to start armed anarchist rebellions. I don't really think that's the mood, regrettably. <laughs> regrettably, we're not at that point quite yet. But what I would like people to imagine is that you know, there are sort of alternative lifestyles and ways of being and ways of envisioning the world and the future that are more hopeful than what we currently have, right? I do think that we're living, and this may just be because I'm speaking to you from Minnesota in February, I do think we're living in a time of relative hopelessness, right? Like things, pretty much everyone I talk to feels deeply bleak and ambivalent about Mm -hmm. things. In almost every regard. So I hope that the book, with all of its quirks, with all of its oddities, can just sort of be be a gentle message to people that there are other ways of doing things. There are other ways of living. There are other ways of envisioning yourself and your partnerships and your community that might be better. Maybe not. Maybe not for everyone, but perhaps better for some. And that's why we need a sequel, because I also want to explore that more. Yeah. I resonate with feeling deeply bleak. And I want to see more of this alternative way of doing things. Um, Because I imagine, like, you'll have multiple alternatives, I imagine, because there's, like, the end, but there's also people who continue on past that um, arrival point. And I'll be curious to see, like, what are the alternatives? Because in my mind, a lot of the alternatives seem also very bad. Um, Yes. Yeah. Well, (laughs) I mean, so we've talked a little bit about this, like, Post-apocalypticism is often bleak, mm-hmm. um, but I don't read Moonstone, the story, nor the place, 
Oh my God, spoiler. Um, I don't, <laughs> I don't envision Moonstone actually as being particularly dystopian at all. My, the, the working title, the file, uh, the name of the file on the computer before it had a name was positive apocalypse. Yeah. Uh, I love that. <laughs> so for me, for me, I'm not imagining this like grisly, grim, dark apocalypse. Well, I mean, there are parts of it that are grim and grisly and dark, right? right? But I'm imagining something that is deeply meaningful and hopeful and constructive mm-hmm. at the end. At, yeah. In the end of things. At least for the characters, you know, that we we care about. Yeah. Um, anyway. <laughs> the characters that we like and uh, want to yeah. see be happy. Yeah. You have well, this one. No. You have this one character. I hope it's okay if I talk about this, but oh, um, not yeah. give away anything. But Araka, no. I think I told you, is yes. my favorite. Can you talk a little bit about Araka? Yes. Oh my gosh. Okay. So they are a non-binary sort of survivalist living in this world. It was important. Part of the importance of the novel for me was talking about queer characters and really sort of foregrounding experiences that I don't read a lot about. Mm-hmm. So Uraka uses they, them pronouns. And some people, when you when they read it, grammatically, it reads as clunky. Especially because in the first chapter where they're introduced, I eschewed using their name. And I only used they, them pronouns. And it, it's a sort of the pacing of where it appears in the novel is a radical departure from the other story that we've just seen, right? So this this person in particular was inspired by my experiences in Colorado, but also experiences that I fundamentally am just not a part of and don't have, right? So I, I came to Colorado as a child. My family moved there when I was one. And even though I feel a really deep sense of affinity and love and appreciation for you know, Colorado Springs, the Front Range, Pikes Peak region, El Paso County, whatever you want to call it. I don't have deep roots there, ultimately. Like, my family moved there when I was one so that my grandmother could work at the Broadmoor. That's the long and short of it. So Uraka's family, though, has a much longer, deeper sort of claim to the region. So their family um, originates in the communities of the San Luis Valley, down in sort of, I don't know, I'm looking at a map right now, south-central Colorado, you know, Alamosa, Great Sand Dunes, Moscow, yeah. Hooper, these areas. And that's that's just a fundamentally different experience to think about. From my experience, it seems sort of fundamentally different to think about what would it mean for my family to have a few centuries of roots here in a place that is changing very, very fast, in a place where all of a sudden there are vast infusions of wealth, of people who don't share my values, people who don't look like me, people who don't have my culture. But also, to be clear, Uraka's family and sort of, I don't know, background, they are also newcomers to the region, right? Mm -hmm. They're just older newcomers. You know, thinking about the sort of Spanish colonialism uh, of the, I don't know, early modern period, Mm -hmm. the historians coming out. um, (laughs) You know, that, that experience is ultimately also part of the sort of settler colonial taking land from people, taking land from people and communities who are not like you but in a much deeper way, or at least in an older way. So I wanted to explore that experience of like how a person with really, really deep roots deals with significant, hard changes and how they navigate that. Uh, And so their story starts during the pandemic and then they survive the apocalypse and we see what happens after that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think Raka kind of made me feel like a little bit of magical realism. Um, And there's just some... 
yeah, I don't know. There's just some great, like there's, they are capable and everywhere at once. Like there's just some magic about, and the way that Uraka feels about yeah. their identity is very, it's okay. just, it, there's something kind of magical about it. It felt very yeah. magical to me. Yeah. Um, no, that's, I don't that, know. that's a really interesting <laughs> perspective. Um, even before the apocalypse, like this character's story was very alternative. It was very non-traditional, right? Like, why we should we shouldn't give it away. Um, even before the collapse of society, they live in a way that is unusual, and they live in a way that, to me, exemplifies this sort of alterity, both of themselves, their identity, but also the way they're participating in the world. Yeah. And maybe it's just, it's magical in a way to read, like you said, the non-binary experience isn't one that I, I know it exists, but I, I'm not generally seeking out that type of literature or experience. I want to more, but I also think it's sort of magical that this person just seems so at peace with themselves and, and at peace, like at peace with the land and connected. And it's, it's just it is kind of magical that there's this person yeah. out there who is so capable and like is a hero. And so anyways, I don't want to give it away either, yeah. but um, no, I no, they're cool. They're cool. Um, yeah. So they're not part of the original five who come from Minnesota, obviously having read it, you know this, but your, your listeners don't, but they, they needed to appear along the way. So. Mm-hmm. Right. Yes. We, yes. yes. It's, it's we great. needed an, in, we needed an intervention. Yeah. 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 So. How do you give yourself permission to do cool things? One of the things I'm working on in therapy is trying a little bit more radical self-acceptance. I'm not good mm. at it, and it does not come naturally to me. But I, I have, in the last year or so in particular, really embraced a version of myself that feels true. Mm. And, you know, I, I think after a lot of introspection, after a lot of reflection, you know, I'm, I'm giving myself permission to live in a way that feels authentic and in a way that feels empowering and very much like me, you know, sort of leaning into the things that I might feel judged about, or I might feel silly about. Like, I think, you know, I have a sort of penchant, actually, my inclination is to say, I have a penchant um, (laughs) (laughs) for being, you know, a little over the top, a little silly, a little exaggerated. And for a long time, I carried some judgment about that or maybe even some shame about that, right? Like you should be serious. You should be studious. You should be, you should be careful with all of these sorts of things. But now I don't feel that at all. Like I can say things like penchant and wear my, and wear my fur coat and my absurd (laughs) necklace that weighs two pounds of silver and turquoise and just sort of, you know, embrace one's sense of whimsy and joy. And I don't know live the kind of life that you want to live without fear of judgment because they're going to judge you anyway. Right. Like, so you might as well be fabulous while doing it. Yeah. And do what you want. Exactly. Like buy the silly cowboy boots, wear the Stetson on a Monday. What have you? <laughs> Don't let the fear of judgment control you too much. But, but at the same time, like this is not to say that I'm just like uninhibited and wild at all times. I do have, you know, boundaries and standards and morals most of the time. for myself. <laughs> much of the time well and it's interesting I think about one of the things that I admire about you and I think it's again it's a theme and other people I've talked to is the thing that I really like about you and there's I mean there's a lot of things but it is that you you. are yourself you don't you're not trying to be anything other than you and I just that's something I'm so drawn to with people is 
they have their unique interests. They have, you know, their unique way of speaking and, and thinking about the world. They have apocalypse book clubs and I don't know, all kinds of things. Yeah. And, um, I, I so admire that. And I think I'm a bit envious because I, I don't exactly know like what exactly is authentic Hannah showing up, Yeah, but I should know, I should know, but, uh, or at least not being afraid and judging myself when I show up authentically. So. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like sort of, I don't know, developing a feeling for when the authentic moments show up and then mm-hmm. sort of checking in with oneself. Like, is this something I like? Is this something I want? Is this really authentic? I don't know. I think we all have moments where we, where we know that we're showing up authentically or inauthentically. And sometimes we feel bad about it. Yes. I can give you an example. I feel like I'm, yeah. I mean, you, you know this about me. I feel like I'm a pretty, I can get pretty like fiery. I think I can get like on a soapbox and, 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 um, <laughs> you and I used to like spar. <laughs> like, I know. I know. I don't even know what it was about. I don't think we had like was, wildly, uh, wildly different views about No, the world. we don't, but it was. <laughs> what was it about? Are you, are you too embarrassed to say? I, cause, cause no, I actually I don't just, remember. I, well, it was, I'm not embarrassed. I just, I don't know how to explain it in a cogent way, but, um, it was about like politics really. And it was, mm. you know, like different ideas about the way the world should work, um, which we've both yeah. evolved and changed over time in our beliefs yes, and what we think that is, makes sense. um, but we, and I used to bar, spar with other people and I, I've been called harsh before and, and judgmental oh. and that's hard. Cause I don't want to be that. And it's no, but at the same time, like I, I am opinionated. I can get quite fiery and sometimes maybe a right. little scary. And <laughs> I, yeah. I wonder if I could just let myself be that without con- like I, it happens and I'm like, I should apologize. That was, ugh, I, oh. I, I was too harsh or I, yeah. like I didn't accommodate them. And I, sometimes I'm like, maybe I should just be fiery and see what happens. And right. <laughs> like, yeah, no, I mean, I think there's absolutely something to recognize in oneself. Like I have a, I have a tendency to be passionate. I have a tendency to be sometimes, I don't know harsh harsh feels like a harsh way of describing it but maybe maybe one could reframe that right like no it's not harsh it's not abrasive it's passionate it's enthusiastic yeah Yeah. in a way that makes other people uncomfortable (laughs) well okay that's i don't know about that (laughs) that's that's the tough part (laughs) that's something to think about yeah, I know. I know. And I'm working. I got to figure out my way through it. But um, yeah. yeah, I think about what is it like to show up authentically and, and uh, not be afraid or apologetic. Because, you know, I do. I don't want to I don't want to lose friends. <laughs> I don't want to keep friends. <laughs> yeah. Well, that makes so. sense. That, that that checks out. Likewise. Yeah, likewise. Yeah. So I, it's I, I think I just admire the uh, the work that you've done and even as you've grown and changed and have reached, you know, the 30 milestone, even when we were in our early twenties, you, I don't even think you were 21 when we met, which is why Uh, it's not that I'm that much older than you, but it was just like, we were very young. No, I think you're right. I think you're right. (laughs) But I think you've always had an element of self-expression that I've really admired. Thank Um, you. Thank you. You know, I think I've, I've embodied many different versions of myself and they're all true. But some are truer than others, right? So very well, um, women of you. So oh, I contain multitudes. <laughs> yes, precisely. And um, I am I am vast. That was actually one of the readings we had at the birthday. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, yeah, I think I've I've embodied many versions of myself. Some are truer than others. But the one I'm the one I'm currently embodying does feel like the truest, the truest mm-hmm. yet, at any rate. And I look back, I look back on like 
different things I've done, different selves that I've been. And there's little kernels and like through lines that I find really fascinating. Like briefly, you know, when I was running for office, that did involve a lot of sort of public performance Mm -hmm. and public articulation of your ideas and defense of your ideas. And I think that that probably gave me a little bit of comfort with Moonstone, right? Like I had to stand up on stage in front of hundreds of people and talk about my strange ideas for El Paso County and how it was okay for a 22-year-old or 23 maybe to be running for public office in the face of people who were 40 or 50 years older than I was. Mm-hmm. And to be clear, that was, a, that was a failed venture. Like, I don't have any shame about calling it a failure. I think you can learn a lot from failure. And in fact, it can still be a meaningful experience that was wildly unsuccessful, right? <laughs> yeah. 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 So what's your next project then? Yes. Well, I should finish this bloody dissertation at some point uh, mm-hmm. in order that I can have the PhD and move on to the next project. So that that's the big sword of Damocles that looms over always constantly in, per, in perpetuity. So the next project, I would love to write Moonstone 2. I have, I have sketches. I have episodic little bits and bobs here and there. We follow characters. We, we go fun places. And I've like, in my head, rehearsed the scenes a thousand times of, of what we do and where we go. But we're missing a bit of narrative arc. So that's mm. something to work on. Mm-hmm. And then there's even, there's even another novel that I, that I think about frequently that has nothing to do with Moonstone. It's a completely separate project. But it has to do with the carceral system and the mm. way in which the way in which we think about crime and punishment and sort of the crimes that are acceptable, the crimes that are shameful, and the ones that sort of brand you for life. Um, mm-hmm. This is an idea I've been kicking around for a long time. But Interesting. Wow. Yeah. Well, yeah. I uh, I look forward to seeing what comes next. Um, Thank you. Yeah, I just, I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. I've, everyone has been so generous with their time and it just, these conversations are really meaningful. So I just want to say thank you so much. Well, thank thank you so much. It it has been really meaningful to reconnect with you and, (laughs) and you took a lot of time to read Moonstone. So that is also a significant investment that I, uh, that I thank you for. Yeah, absolutely. It was, I enjoyed it. I, I think I told you the thing that was hardest about it was it felt real and it felt like I was like, I, this is hard, but uh, you know, it has yeah. moments that are really beautiful and interesting. And so thank you. If anyone's interested, I mean, or do you, what's your, uh, Oh, they can definitely get it. Um, they don't have to, they don't have to pay me for it. I will happily send anyone a PDF. It has not, it has not been successful so far at getting an agent or a book contract mm-hmm. from a publisher. It is something I work on, but I don't have a ton of time to query agents and send letters and things. So I do maybe one or two a month just in spare time. I'm just curious. I know we're kind of wrapping yeah. up, but is it, how, how do you, so you, you haven't been successful yet. How are yeah. you making meaning of that? Yeah. I mean, I think I, I recognize that it is a hard sell. Like the book, especially the first chapter really foregrounds anarchism. The rest of the novel, I think has a lot less of that, but the the sample that people want to read, they're like, send me the first five pages. The book is not easily summarized in the first five pages. No. This is this is a journey. It's a project. Really, they should read a couple of chapters, maybe. So I haven't quite figured out the alchemy of how to sell it to a publisher or to an agent because the stuff they want to read is not right. It's not readily evident at the beginning, and the stuff they want to read 
really is a slow burn throughout the novel, not mm-hmm. nicely encapsulated in five pages. So I recognize that it's a hard sell. I sort of give myself a little bit of grace in that regard. Like, I mean, it would take a very special, fearless agent to take the project. Mm-hmm. Right. And actually, yeah. that's the first that's the first line of my letter. The first line of the letter is, hello, so-and-so, or dear so-and-so, I need a fearless agent or publisher <laughs> to represent me and the novel. Like, do you have what it takes to do this? Because this is not <laughs> This is not an easy road. This is like I'm I'm basically just like reading them song of the open road. Like I don't I don't offer you riches. I don't offer you anything important, but I offer you myself. And are you going to travel with me, Camarado? No. <laughs> That's awesome. I love that. So far, um, nobody has answered the call. Well, I that's I'm, but at least maybe they enjoyed the letter. I hope. I mean, that's pretty unique. I would yeah, think. I don't know. Thank I, you. I and I guess it's and how do you you know, the the novel means a lot to you. It represents yeah. a time in your life and, and it's self-expression. You know, it's hard to be rejected. And so how do you keep the feeling like this is still beautiful as is and it is, you know, how do you reconcile those two? Yeah, no, that's a great question. It's a great question. First of all, most agents and publishers just ghost you. They, they actually literally just don't even respond. Nice. Um, so in that case, you, I've, I sort of tell myself that like, they're just not going to respond at all. It's not a great way to be, but it's a way of saying like, I'm a pawn against systemic forces. And if I get a, if I get a response at all, I consider it positive. But Mm -hmm. for most cases, they just say nothing. So, I mean, I, I derive comfort from the fact that the people who have read the novel seem to like it. They seem to find it meaningful. They have favorite characters and favorite passages, which to me says, like, I did something right. I was able mm-hmm. to craft a couple of memorable people, a couple of memorable passages. And that, to me, says it's a success, even if agents are, are struggling with it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Because that's agents true. also aren't reading it. A- agents are only reading five or ten pages, right. whereas the people who have read it are absorbing the majority of it. And so I think they are, frankly, a better audience than someone who skims it, skims mm-hmm. a, few, a, few, a few pages. Right. Yeah, that's a really good point. It's like I've obviously done something right that people read it and they talk about it. I just that's a really good point. I've done something right. Yeah. Um it doesn't have to be Thank perfect, you. but I've done something right. And I I will yeah. say I think it has made an impact and it, there are several memorable moments that yeah. have stuck. And I I mean to be fair, I think one of the things that I love about it is the journey. I I know you, so the journey from Minnesota to Colorado. And I know like your affinity for Colorado and I know, I know you a little bit as a, you know, as a human being. So I'm like, this feels, it does feel like Alex and that feels familiar. And that's, it's, it's neat. There were, I think there are some scenes on their own that just stick with me and I hope other people can experience it. 